There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And welcome to The Napoleon Assist. I'm going to start a little oddly with an apology. It's been five weeks since you last heard of me. Now, some of you are probably quite relieved about that fact. But as those of you who follow me on Twitter may know, I had a complete hard drive meltdown in late July, which threw all of my plans out of the window, which is why you haven't heard the usual fortnightly pods. The eagle-eared is that even a thing? It should be eagle-eyed or bat-eared, shouldn't it? But bat-eared sounds like an insult. Anyway, you will have noticed that this also isn't what was advertised. I'm still working on organising those interviews on culture during this period. They will happen. I had a great recording with Claire Civita recently. That was on Napoleonic Theatre. So you can look forward to hearing that next week. In the meantime, I'm going to talk to you today about something that came up in a Twitter conversation. I saw a paper on the Duke of Wellington which looked at the infamous scum of the earth comment and had quite a nasty shock when I saw that the author had had a look at something that I'd written about popular perceptions of the Peninsula War. Robin Bennett, therefore quite perceptively, told me to get off the fence and say what I thought about it. And I figured that to do that properly, it needed a whole pod rather than a 280 character tweet. So, Robin, this one's for you. And be warned, to atone for my sins of my prolonged absence, this is a bit of an odyssey. It's easily the longest solo pod I've done yet. So get comfy. As it happens, I'm quite fond of the whole scum of the earth comment. It seems to sort of dog a lot of my work. The first piece that I ever got published was actually an article entitled Old Nosy and the Scum of the Earth. It assessed the relationship between Arthur Wellesley and his troops in the Iberian Peninsula, which went out in Mars and Cleo way back in 2013. Sadly, the Mars and Cleo archive is quite hard to find, but if you take a look at the website for the British Commission for Military History, you can still find them. Today, though, I'm going to take a look at the scum of the earth quote from a number of different angles. For one thing, 
it's one of those comments where the context is very poorly understood. So I want to start by burrowing into that before looking at whether it was factually accurate and then the extent to which it is actually representative of Wellington's views on his men and conversely what they actually thought about him. On the 22nd of July 1813, Wellington wrote a private letter to the Secretary of State for War and the Colonies, Earl Bathurst, in which he said, and I quote, It is quite impossible for me or any other man to command a British army under the existing system. We have in the service the scum of the earth as common soldiers. It's an infamous quote, which has been reused, taken out of context and misrepresented for the last 200 years. Straight away, there are some important things to clear up. For one thing, it was actually a comment made in anger. Wellington had recently won the Battle of Victoria in Spain on the 21st of June, almost two weeks previously, and the aftermath of that victory had been blighted by the troops plundering King Joseph Bonaparte's abandoned baggage train. As the work of Chris Walgar has shown, however, the comment itself was provoked by reports of ongoing problems in the area from stragglers who were continuing to harass the locals and plunder, to the point where army law enforcement had to be called in. Wellington was angry. He didn't have the time to be dealing with this. He was probably resentful that Victoria hadn't been quite the total annihilation of the French army that he had hoped for. And this is one of a number of instances where Wellington did the 19th century equivalent of firing off an email in anger. It was also written in a private letter, which is significant. Wellington had two types of correspondence, the official dispatches, which he wrote to his bosses in London, providing a formal report of his operations, but he also had more private correspondence. Wellington knew that the dispatches were likely to be released to the public, and he therefore tempered his tone accordingly. Private letters were a different story though, and where we see the classic Wellingtonian rants about incompetence, they come from that private correspondence, which you could be fairly sure wasn't going to be circulated widely. In essence then, he wasn't expecting the scum of the earth remark to become public knowledge. For more on this, I'd recommend looking at the work of Chris Wilgar, who has spent most of the last three decades working with the Duke of Wellington's correspondence in Southampton University's Special Collections Department. That whole comment in anger issue doesn't mean, however, that it wasn't at least partially representative of Wellington's views of his men. Wellington was a deeply conservative individual. As his later political career would show, he was not a fan of the lower classes. Although, admittedly, talking about class during this period is a bit anachronistic, but you get what I'm trying to, to push at here. He opposed the Great Reform Act. He was an aristocrat, born into privilege, had seen the turmoil of the mob unfold in Paris during the Revolution, and had no real love of the poor. He didn't despise them, but that's not really the point. For Wellington to have such an attitude isn't actually that surprising, and crucially, it was a comment that he used again on a number of occasions. In fact, he used the phrase a total of four times, the 1813 letter that we've already looked at, a memorandum whilst Prime Minister in 1829, and then twice in conversations with Earl Stanhope. In the memo, and again I'm drawing on the work of Chris Walgar here, 
Wellington added a pencil annotation saying that the British soldier was the scum of the earth, but that was then omitted from the final version of the memo, probably because it wouldn't have been the most politically astute comment to make about the army whilst PM. The comments to Stanhope are interesting though. When comparing French and British soldiers, he said, and I quote, I don't mean to say that there is no difference in the composition or therefore the feeling of the French army and ours. The French system of conscription brings together a fair sample of all classes. Ours is composed of the scum of the earth, the mere scum of the earth. It is only wonderful that we should be able to make so much out of them afterwards. The English soldiers are fellows who have all enlisted for drink. That is the plain fact. They have all enlisted for drink. And when talking about the types of people who signed up to the British army, he reiterated the point. A French army is composed very differently from ours. The conscription calls out a share of every class, no matter whether your son or my son. All must march. But our friends, I may say it in this room, are the very scum of the earth. People talk of enlisting from their fine military feeling. All stuff. No such thing. Some of our men enlist from having got bastard children. Some for minor offences. Many more for drink. But you can hardly conceive such a set brought together. And it really is wonderful that we should have made them the fine fellows they are. So a couple of consistent things emerge. For one thing, Wellington didn't seem to want this view to be made public. The comment, I may say it in this room, clearly shows that he was expecting those who he was talking to to be discreet. Likewise, removing the remark from his memo and writing in a private rather than official capacity to Bathurst all show that this wasn't something that he wanted to be common knowledge. As with so much of what Wellington said though, the genie ended up being out of the bottle in the end anyway. The flip side, however, is that this is clearly a candid remark which he genuinely believed to be accurate. The other consistent thing, particularly from the conversations with Stanhope, is the backhanded compliment. Wellington thought that men joined the army for all the wrong reasons, represented the worst miscreants in society, were universally drunk, but still could be turned into excellent soldiers by the British army and its methods. Hold that thought for a moment, because I want to come on to that relationship with the army later on. But it makes sense now to explore whether Wellington was actually right. This brings me on to the paper that sparked the writing of this podcast, an undergrad thesis by Daniel West at Kent University. I'll be open from the start. I'm not about to start slinging any dirt, not least because it's a BA thesis and I'm not in the habit of doing anything other than encouraging and supporting the next generation of potential researchers. I disagree with some of his conclusions on siege warfare, but that's a very active area of discussion with a lot of unprinted work making its way into the public domain in the coming couple of years. And judging his paper on that would just be absurdly unfair. The paper is an interesting one. It has a sound historical premise of looking at whether or not the comment was legitimate. It looks at the social origins and the actions of the men in a bid to try and answer that question. It's a sensible approach to a decent question and is a well-written paper. And you can find it for free on academia.edu and form your own views on its conclusions. In terms of whether these men were truly scum, you have to look at why they enlisted. The idea which has been floated by historians in the past is that a significant body of the recruits to the army were the pickings of the jails. 
people who enlisted to escape long prison sentences, or even death. The evidence of this, though, is patchy at best. Certainly there were penal regiments in the British Army, such as the Royal African Corps or the West India Regiments. As regular listeners will know, I'm quite keen on crime and punishment in this period, and a while back I took a look at the Old Bailey online records to see how many people actually were drafted into the army as a court punishment. The reality was that I found only a handful over 11 years, but that's by no means an exhaustive search. Many court records have been lost to us, and the Old Bailey, quite obviously, is just one court. But there is a deeper point. If you were sentenced to army service, the odds are you were going to be sent to the penal regiments, and not to the regular regiments that served under Wellington in the peninsula. Certainly there were those who fell on hard times, may have spent some time in prison for petty crimes before enlisting in the army, but it would be a mistake to characterise all recruits as hardened criminals. Instead, as Ed Koss has shown, recruitment during this period mirrors the contemporary labour market. In times of economic hardship, people turned to the army as a source of stable income and a guaranteed meal, although the army didn't provide three meals a day until much later. The net result is that those most affected by seasonal fluctuations in employment, particularly labourers, were most likely to enlist. In any case, a significant proportion of recruits were volunteers who came from the militia, which itself did not recruit the dregs from prisons. I'm not going to spend the entire podcast talking about recruitment, not least because Kevin Lynch has written an important book on that topic, and he covers it in a far more comprehensive and eloquent way than I can. Essentially, though, the idea that the rank and file were from the very dregs of society is quite clearly unfounded. That's not to say that these men were shining examples of the best that humanity could offer. Their life was hard. As I mentioned in the past, their rations weren't adequate for their nutritional needs. Often the food didn't arrive and their pay was months in arrears. They drank heavily. They stole, sometimes for subsistence, other times because they felt it was their right. These weren't pleasant men, but that doesn't justify the label. Then we come on to the equally important issue of how representative was that comment of the dynamic between Wellington and his men. In this sense, the comment is really unhelpful because of its famous nature, and in effect has become a bit of distraction. As a result, it obscures the more kind of complex relationship that existed between Old Nosey, as he was known by his men, Arthur Wellesley, and the troops under his command. Wellington's relationship with his troops was, it's fair to say, dominated by the issue of discipline. Although Wellington acknowledged his men's ability under fire, he frequently wrote home, criticising their tendency to steal from the local population. As a result, Wellington's letters provide an almost schizophrenic message, bordering on the seemingly duplicitous. The accuracy of Peter Snow's claim that Wellington kind of demonstrated this schizophrenia is demonstrated in Wellington's correspondence following the seizure of a porto by the Allied army in May 1809. In his official dispatch, Wellington assured Viscount Carceret, Secretary of State for War, that, quote, I cannot say too much in favour of the officers and troops. However, two weeks later, he informed Castlereagh that his men were, quote, 
a rabble who cannot bear success any more than Sir John Moore's army could bear failure. I am endeavouring to tame them. The extent to which Wellington actually succeeded in taming his men is debatable, considering the persistence of references to looting in general orders. On the 7th of September 1809, Wellington issued a general order stating that, quote, Notwithstanding the repeated order given out upon the subject, the soldiers of the 4th Division plundered beehives in the neighbourhood of Badahoff. A further general order, dated the 4th of April 1810, indicates that the problem persisted. Wellington asked officers to remind men that, quote, it is impossible for them to commit these outrages without being discovered, and that conviction and punishment are the certain consequences of their crimes. The problem continued to trouble Wellington throughout the Peninsular War, with examples of serious lapses, including the sacking of Badahoff after its capture in April 1812, and the retreat from Salamanca in November 1812. As many of you will know, I've covered this in more detail elsewhere in other pods, but on both occasions, Wellington penned furious general orders demanding the execution of perpetrators. By the time the Allied army had pushed into France, what Peter Griffiths describes as Wellington's legendary discipline had produced results. Nonetheless, Wellington commented in a general order on the 16th of April 1814 that whilst many troops had exhibited exemplary behaviour, quote, there have been some exceptions which the commander of the forces has been obliged to notice. The fact that this last order was issued at the end of the war's final campaign demonstrates that Wellington never completely changed his men's habits. Nonetheless, Wellington was fair on this occasion by commenting that looting had become an exception rather than the normality, as had been the case much earlier in the war. However, fairness was a recurring theme that at times soured the troops' thoughts on their commander, um, as I'm going to go on to discuss a little later. The troops' responses to Wellington's attempts to change their behaviour were, I think it's fair to say, varied. Individuals such as Rifleman Edward Costello recognised that the actions of his colleagues during the sacking of Badahoff were appalling. Wellington's orders for the execution of those caught stealing were known throughout the army, yet had a limited effect as War Commissary August Schaumann relates an example of a man running the risk regardless. After being caught in the act of stealing a beehive, the private escaped by hurling said beehive on the ground in front of the general attempting to arrest him, fleeing whilst that general tried to avoid being stung by the angry bees. Quite a neat little trick, actually. However, it appears that many approved of Wellington's harsh measures of flogging and hanging those caught stealing. Private William Wheeler wrote home, with evident disgust, claiming that the conduct of some men during the retreat from Salamanca would have disgraced savages. Sergeant Cooper went even further, writing, It has often been said that the Duke of Wellington was severe. In answer to that, I would say that he could not be otherwise. His army was composed of the lowest orders. And this really comes back to the scum of the earth thing. Behaviourally, it was a more accurate comment about his men. Socially, though, it just wasn't. Wellington's famous comment has certainly tainted the discussion of the commander's relations with his troops. And in the remainder of this podcast, I want to go beyond the scum of the earth remark to try and quantify what that relationship really looked like. As you'll see, I'd suggest that it was actually far more subtle, as Wellington himself later wistfully remarked that he could have gone anywhere and done anything with that army. 
Wellington's attitude to the social background of his men has interesting implications on his attitudes to their conduct. Since he believed that his men were naturally inclined to looting if given the chance, he often blamed the lapses of discipline on the failure of the officers and occasionally non-commissioned officers. Wellington's belief that the NCOs should have held the privates in check is actually inconsistent with his comments about their social background. As the NCOs were promoted from amongst the privates, they were theoretically just as prone to poor behaviour as the men that they were expected to control. However, Wellington also recognised that there was little incentive for the NCOs to do their duty due to the relatively small increase of pay that they received upon promotion. In a letter to Lord Liverpool on the 10th of June 1812, he blamed the failure of the NCOs to maintain discipline on the fact that, quote, the old proportions of pay have not been preserved and the non-commissioned officers of the army not only feel no inclination to preserve a distinction between them and the private soldiers, but they feel no desire to incur the responsibility. Something which incidentally is kind of confirmed by a number of those who were promoted but then subsequently lost their positions as NCOs due to their behaviour. Wellington's famous attempts to keep his men supplied with provisions were primarily driven by pragmatism. That is not to suggest that Wellington did not care deeply for his men's welfare. He rode 30 miles on one occasion after hearing that wounded soldiers had been ejected from their shelters by officers. On his arrival, he ordered that the men be brought back inside and returned the following night to check that his order had been obeyed. Wellington was nothing if not a slave to attention to detail. Nonetheless, Wellington appreciated that discipline would collapse in a poorly supplied army. He commented to his brother that, quote, A starving army is really worse than none. The soldiers lose their discipline and their spirit. The men, in turn, appreciated Wellington's concern for, dis- for supply and the effect that his concerns had on the orderly distribution of food for them. Wheeler demonstrated this in his tribute to Wellington, saying that he would rather serve under him than any other commander, as we should always be as well supplied with rations as the nature of the service would admit. Bryant states the sentiment much more succinctly. He looked after what they valued the most, which was their stomachs. An examination of Wellington's correspondence throughout this period also shows the attention that he paid to fairness in the courts-martial. In a letter to Colonel Bingham, for example, Wellington recommended a reconsideration of a case of desertion, arguing that the punishment decided upon was illegal. However, the attention that Wellington paid to those legalities of trial proceedings didn't always work in the favour of his troops, because in a letter to Major General Brisbane, Wellington wrote that The court having found the prisoner Kelly guilty of the whole charge of burglary, the legal sentence for that offence is death and not transportation for life. Wellington's fairness also impacted on his attitude towards the troops' frequent stealing, as he commented that it was inevitable that they were going to resort to looting if they were not adequately fed. It's therefore surprising that he issued such a furious condemnation to his generals after the retreat from Salamanca in November 1812, condemning that collapse of discipline amongst his troops. Wellington, for some rather odd reason, was seemingly unaware of the fact that the troops had not received any provisions, commenting that the army had met with no disasters, it had suffered no privations. Although Wheeler recognised that some of the troops had actually behaved appallingly, 
Many resented Wellington's sweeping criticism of the whole army and his refusals to acknowledge that some had fought bravely during the retreat and remained in good order. It is striking, however, that William Bragg remarked, I thought he, Wellington, would find himself not so popular in the army. He has now given the infantry tents, therefore he is again a fine fellow. Wellington's attention to supply seemingly overrode his men's irritation at his sweeping generalisations. Wellington's concern about the loose discipline of his men had significant implications on the battlefield. Roy Muir highlights that prior to the Battle of Salamanca, Wellington had misgivings about the ability of his men to regroup after a successful bayonet charge and continue their assault in a coherent formation. Wellington's fears originated from the Battle of Talavera, when the guards and two KGL brigades carried their charge against a French column too far and were subsequently surprised and badly mauled by a second body of French troops. Wellington only closed the resulting gap in his uh, centre by committing all of his reserves. His concerns were reinforced by frequent displays of recklessness from the British cavalry. In a letter to Lieutenant General Hill, Wellington expressed his exasperation at the cavalry's poor discipline and the tendency of the cavalry and the tendency of the cavalry, quote, have acquired of galloping at everything and they're galloping back as fast as they can gallop on the enemy. They never consider their situation. It is interesting to note that Wellington blamed this failing on his officers' inability to control their men, providing a further suggestion of Wellington's fair approach to his men on most, if not all, occasions. The caution which Wellington displayed as a result of this concern frequently frustrated all ranks as they perceived it as a lack of faith in their ability. As the example above has indicated, those fears were not unfounded, but the attitude of the men was influenced by their lack of appreciation of the factors which influenced Wellington's decision to fight a battle. Wellington was extremely careful with his men's lives, only engaging the French if the result would be an overwhelming victory that would produce strategic benefits. One of the clearest examples of this can be found in the campaign preceding the Battle of Salamanca. Wellington was widely criticised by his men for refusing to attack Marshal Marmont when Marmont confronted him at San Cristobal earlier in the campaign. Wellington was also deeply affected by the losses his army sustained during battle. The clearest example of that can be found in the aftermath of the Siege of Badajoz, which resulted in somewhere in the region of four to four and a half thousand casualties for the Allies. Whilst visiting the breaches of the fortress on the morning after the assault, Wellington openly wept at the sight of the dead, something which Picton, one of his subordinates, could not understand. Wellington's concerns for his men's lives, although heartfelt and genuine, were also partially based on realism. Wellington summarised the practicalities behind his caution whilst observing the French army camped before the lines of Torres Vedras in 1810. Damned tempting, he murmured, before adding, I could lick those fellows any day, but it would cost me 10,000 men, and this is the last army England has. We must take care of it. If Wellington had risked the lives of his men in costly, strategically unprofitable battles, his army would have shrunk dramatically in size, becoming ineffective on campaign and ultimately resulting in its expulsion from the peninsula, a constraint that other commanders, notably Napoleon, was much less mindful of. It is impossible to overstate the morale-boosting effect that Wellington's presence on the battlefield had on his men. 
It is no exaggeration to say that by the middle of 1812, at the latest, almost the entire Allied army trusted his judgment and was prepared to obey his orders in battle, confident of a successful outcome. Possibly the clearest demonstration of the men's belief in Wellington's ability can be found in a tale that relates to the aftermath of the Battle of Albuera. In the wake of that costly Allied victory secured by Marshal Beresford, Wellington visited some of the wounded. On seeing men of a particular regiment, he remarked that he was sorry to see so many of them there. My lord came the reply, if you had been with us, there would not have been so many of us here. Albera was undoubtedly a point at which the rank and file's appreciation of Wellington's skill as a commander intensified. Where's our Arthur? A fusilier asked his comrade during the battle. When his friend replied that he didn't know, the former remarked, I wish he was here. The trust all ranks of the British army placed in Wellington stemmed from his reputation for never having lost a battle, excepting a failed attack outside Seringapatam in 1799, which he didn't actually plan in person. The memoirs and letters of soldiers provide many examples of men expressing their admiration to Wellington in person. Perhaps the most famous is that of a sentry who, um, when Wellington had forgotten the countersign whilst visiting the Paquettes, exclaimed, God bless your crooked nose. I would sooner see it than 10,000 men. However, the respect and appreciation that the men felt for Wellington's skill as a commander should not be confused for a widespread love of the Duke. Wellington was not a commander, unlike Napoleon, who inspired love on a personal level with his troops, not least because he hated dramatic demonstrations. As I say, that style contrasted quite markedly with Bonaparte, who was known for inspiring personal loyalty through dramatic demonstrations and displays, and was even known to tug the ear of his favourite veterans. Nonetheless, the affectionate tone of the example that I quoted earlier is reinforced by the nickname that the troops gave their commander, Old Nosey, obviously a reference to his large nose. The existence of a nickname shows that despite Wellington's reserved manner, his men still sought to relate to him due to its other merits. Wellington himself recognised and in fact appreciated the high esteem in which his troops held him in. He commented that, When I come myself, the soldiers think that what they have to do is the most important since I am there. They will do for me what perhaps no one else can make them do. It's a pretty self-absorbed statement, but this was largely the result of his insistence that he moved between the places of greatest importance during a battle. Wellington's knowledge that his men trusted him undoubtedly increased his own confidence, as he could execute his plans without fear of his men refusing to follow orders. The scum of the earth remark may create a misleading impression that Wellington's relationship with his officers, rather than the rank and file, was more harmonious. In reality, there were a number of ironically quite significant similarities with the relationship with his men. And at times, it was just as turbulent, despite the, the officers being closer to Wellington's kind of social standing. The greatest strain on Wellington's relationship with his officers was the issue of incompetence. Wellington detested competence, perhaps above anything else, amongst his officers, and frequently made furious remarks about the problem in his correspondence. The clearest indication of this 
is in a letter to William Wellesley Pole on the negligence of two officers who allowed the garrison of Almeida to escape following the Battle of Fuente de Onero. With evident fury, Wellington remarked that there was nothing so stupid as a gallant officer. Although the circumstances surrounding this outburst involved senior officers rather than junior officers, the basic sentiment applied actually to officers of all ranks. Wellington's expectation that his officers should deal with the issues of poor discipline meant that he placed the majority of the blame with them when discipline slipped. He regarded this as a virtually unforgivable failure by officers to do their duty. Wellington's unrelenting condemnation of his officers' occasional negligence and lack of zeal was derived actually from his own dedication. Wellington was renowned for rising early every morning and working until midnight, and he was therefore disappointed when his officers failed to display the same extremely high standards. The officers, like the men and NCOs, resented Wellington's harsher criticisms. Wellington's letter to his generals following the retreat of Salamanca in 1812 provoked an equally scandalised reaction amongst the officer class. They asked how or in what manner they were to blame for the privations that the army had endured. In contrast to the NCOs and men, the officers refused to acknowledge that Wellington's criticisms of their failings may have been partially justified. This denial can partly be attributed to individuals attempting to exonerate themselves from blame and cause bitterness amongst other officers suggesting that there was a degree of a rift between Wellington and his subordinates. The officers' own inclination to criticise Wellington and think that they knew best also tended to deepen that rift with the Duke. The origins of that criticism of Wellington's decisions were twofold. Firstly, some arrogantly believed that they understood the situation as well as their commander. I'll give you an example of Captain William Bragg, who in a letter to his father remarked that, being as much in Lord Wellington's secrets as any general officer, I have as good a right to talk about what is to be done in the forthcoming campaign. Of course, the idea that a captain such as Bragg somehow had access to all of the information at Wellington's disposal is obviously ludicrous. Secondly, we must consider when the sources were written. Many officers' accounts were written during their period of service rather than retrospectively. As a result, the diaries and letters from the war are far more critical as the officers didn't know that Wellington would ultimately lead his army to victory and therefore criticise his actions if they did not facilitate immediate success. John Kincaid's adventures in the Rifles Brigade exemplifies this as the frequency with which he compliments Wellington contrasts quite dramatically with, for example, the acid-tongued remarks of William Tompkinson. The frequent criticism to which Wellington was subjected in officers' letters home caused him a great deal of ir irritation. The problem of Crocus became so severe that Wellington issued a general order requesting the officers, for the sake of their own reputations, avoid giving opinions upon which they cannot have a knowledge to enable them to form any. Wellington was always good with a, a scathing cut down. The tone of that general order is actually quite striking, for although it is scathing, it lacks some of the real cutting nature for which Wellington was actually renowned for when dealing with incompetence. If anything, I would suggest that in that particular quote, he sounds more exasperated rather than angry, as he points out, officers are just going to embarrass themselves if they talk about things that they know nothing about. Furthermore, 
his remarks were actually completely justified. I'll give you another example from Thomas Dinley this time, writing to his brother on the 5th of May 1812, clearly indicating that no one in Wellington's army had any idea where he intended to attack next. As Wellington's exasperated tone was undoubtedly deliberate, that example adds a curious dimension to the relationship between him and his men. If nothing else, he's taking an opportunity to frame it in such a way that he's doing them a favour by giving them a piece of advice. But it's also important to note the pragmatism in his attempts to sense his officers' letters, as the letters in question often made references to the location of specific units. They divulged information which, if published in the newspapers, could provide the French with a small degree of useful intelligence, if nothing else to know what was being deployed where, especially if men were going into winter quarters. Despite their criticisms, the officers appreciated Wellington's ability on the battlefield just as much as the men. That should not be taken for granted, as the respect had to physically be earned. The case of Croker's, those who like to criticise Wellington, indicates that the officers were not naturally inclined to praise their commander. They often thought that they had a much better idea of the situation. Think of it a bit like um, armchair generals or, or footballers, da football fans down the pub after a game. Everybody knows how the game should have been won, um, regardless of the fact that they might not be the most skilled uh, manager ever to grace the earth. Back to Wellington, though. This sense of Wellington needing to earn his officers' respect is reinforced by the evident lack of enthusiasm with which some greeted his appointment as head of the army in Portugal in 1809. Nonetheless, the officers, like the men, came to assume that Wellington's presence guaranteed success. Bragg exemplified this in a letter in 1812, remarking that Lord Wellington, in all his military career, never missed taking a fort. I do not imagine he is going to be outdone at Burgos. There's another nice little indication that Bragg, in particular, was not much of a prophet when it came to foreseeing the wider military situation, because, as a number of you will know, Burgos ended up being one of Wellington's significant failings. Kincaid commented on the wider issue, though, in his memoirs uh, by saying that prior to the Battle of Puente de Onuro, there was a unanimous agreement amongst all ranks that they would rather see Wellington's long nose in a fight than a reinforcement of 10,000 men any day. The similarities between that quote and the example of the soldier blessing Wellington's crooked nose are striking. It's hard to know quite what the origins are, whether there's overlap between the two, but it does show that there is a basic sentiment in the belief that Wellington on the battlefield provided an advantage that you couldn't measure purely in terms of the reinforcement of a single battalion. Wellington's skill was too great for it to not have some kind of impact on the degree of success that the men enjoyed in battle. The fact that Wellington's officers also had a nickname for him reveals a further similarity between the attitudes of the men and their officers towards their own commander. The officers called Wellington the bow after his dandyish smart appearance. He was quite famous for cutting the tails of his frock coat short and um, the famous Wellington boot is based around the style that he likes to uh, demonstrate by um, cutting the boots down to the length of his calf, which is why wellies come up to the middle of your calf. This raises the possibility that both officers and men sought to deconstruct that barrier between themselves and Wellington 
and it's debatable how successfully they did that, by trying to make him more familiar to them. Wellington's officers appreciated other aspects of his personality too, particularly his lack of interest in artificial discipline. Lieutenant Grattan exemplified this, writing that Wellington was a most indulgent commander who paid no attention to the men's uniform, provided we brought our men into the field well-appointed and with 60 rounds of good ammunition each. However, Wellington's relaxed attitude only applied to the best units of his army because he insisted on rigorous drill exercises for new units which failed to meet high standards that he imposed. The perceived issue of Wellington failing to trust his army on the battlefield also, unsurprisingly, caused irritation amongst his officers, providing again an indication of similarities in the way that they thought despite the social divide. An engineer from the 4th Division commented with satisfaction after Salamanca that Lord Wellington has at length done what we have so long been wishing him to do, that is, attack the enemy, and it has been attended with the greatest success. The result of this last action near Salamanca has given our army a character which many thought they were not deserving, that of the highest state of discipline and attention to their officers in the heat of action. Some officers, however, made more bitter observations. Tompkinson sarcastically remarked, Lord Wellington may not like to entrust officers with, det with detachments to act according to circumstances, and I am quite unclear if he approves of much success, excepting under his own immediate eye. As a cavalry officer, Tompkinson might have had a bit of an agenda, might have been more inclined to attack the Duke than most, as Wellington, as we've covered, frequently berated the cavalry for their recklessness, which resulted from loose discipline, and attributed that problem to the failing of officers. It was not a concern that was ungrounded. Think of Talavera. There's a charge that gets out of hand. Ditto Salamanca. And of course, for those of you who've listened to the Waterloo podcast, you'll know that the Union and Heavy Cavalry Brigades do exactly the same thing. There is a, a pattern that develops there. Wellington's wider remarks that the cavalry was incapable of manoeuvre except on Wimbledon Common, was a comment that, according to Longford, the cavalry never actually forgave. And this raises the interesting question of whether Wellington's popularity varied between different arms of the Allied army, although there isn't actually the time to go into that now. The peaks and troughs of Wellington's relationship with his officers were far deeper due to Wellington's anger at the officers' frequent failures to prevent their men from looting. A number of the officers felt at times, that they dare not intervene in the appalling behaviour of their men. In June 1813, men of the Light Division tore down a farmhouse while the officers just looked on, causing a member of Wellington's staff to write an angry letter on the Duke's behalf. Although the issue of looting is most commonly associated with the men, some of the officers were, as I've discussed elsewhere, equally complicit in those lapses of discipline. Captain Hay, for example, admitted in his memoir to stealing sheep from the Portuguese. Wellington acknowledged both this problem and the officers' unwillingness to stop their men looting in the aftermath of Talavera. In a letter to Marquis Wellesley, he commented that the soldiers lose their discipline and their spirit. They plunder before the presence of the officers. The officers are discontented and are almost as bad as the men. Once again, pragmatism formed a key part of Wellington's concern as their failing increased hostility from the locals towards the British army. In a general order, he explained that officers as well as the soldiers suffer the privation 
of every comfort and every necessary due to the reluctance of the population to assist the army with supply following lootings. Nonetheless, Wellington attached great value to the British officers, holding them responsible for the successful moulding of unpromising elements of the British lower class into an effective army. Wellington's opinions were shaped unsurprisingly by his own view on class, as he commented that the British army is what it is because it is officered by gentlemen, men who would scorn to do a dishonourable thing, although they looted, so were inclined to be dishonourable on occasions. But anyway, let, let's move on from that. Wellington was openly contemptuous of rankers, that is, NCOs, who were promoted to officers. Many years after the Peninsula War, he remarked, I've never known an officer promoted from the ranks turn out well. They cannot stand drink. There are remarkable contradictions between these comments and Wellington's approach to running the army. The above quotes demonstrate that the Duke supported the British Army's tendency to favour educated gentlemen over lowest-class individuals, regardless of merit, and that clashes with his abhorrence of incompetence and constant frustration at his powerlessness to promote or dismiss officers on grounds of merit due to army regulations. The clearest indication of Wellington's preferences in the qualities of an officer is revealed through his grief at the death of Major Cox on the 8th of October 1812 during the Siege of Burgos. Cox was, in many respects, Wellington's beau ideal of an officer. Um, he was nobly born and dedicated to his job. This suggests that, despite the contradictions that I've just been through, Wellington preferred and had more respect for officers with titles and social status, or who were at least gentlemen. Nonetheless, professionalism and dedication to the duty were perhaps more overriding concerns, and any officer who failed in their duty would, regardless of social rank, be subjected to Wellington's displeasure. It's important to appreciate that, although Wellington's relationship with his officers was more turbulent than those with his men, he still enjoyed cordial relations with them. He was always prepared to invite an officer to dinner, albeit in his characteristically curt manner. If you will dine with me, I dine at six o'clock. And, and that was as much as you got. Those officers who dined with Wellington found that he was actually an excellent host. Uh, he appreciated a joke on occasions when there wasn't bad news, which was preoccupying him, and generally sought to engage his guests in conversation, regardless of their rank. Wellington's manners and love of hunting were well known throughout the army, and were regarded by officers as befitting a man of his position, as both Kincaid and actually Costello testified to. As a result, a significant proportion of the officers felt able to admire Wellington, both for his skill on the battlefield and the way in which he seemingly conformed to the social norms of his class. But again, that's perhaps unsurprising because the vast majority of these officers were invested in the system of social hierarchies. As Neil commented as early as the 6th of October 1808, the departure of Sir Arthur Wellesley for England is a subject of great regret with the army. He won the entire confidence and affections of the soldiery in an uncommon degree by his talents and affability. Wellington's frugality with praise could also at times strain that relationship with his officers. A sense of injustice developed amongst many officers who felt that their efforts had not been recognised. 
This sentiment was echoed by Wellington's brother, William, who suggested that he was not warm enough in praise for your officers, and therefore the officers' complaints were, as a result, justified. However, the fact that Wellington was sparing with his praise meant that the occasions when he did commend individuals, or whole units for that matter, held far more meaning for the recipients. George Hennell, for example, wrote home with evident pleasure on hearing that Wellington had been particularly impressed with the performance of his unit's skirmishes at the Battle of Salamanca. And in that sense, there's a commonality there with how Napoleon tended to operate in terms of how he handed out praise. Furthermore, Wellington's correspondence reveals that he was meticulously fair in his attempts to reward officers by recommending them for medals and mentioning them in dispatches. As with the cases of courts martial, Wellington's fairness did not always work in an officer's favour. If the Duke discovered that an officer had been recommended for a medal whilst being absent from the engagement, he specifically wrote to have that honour withdrawn. It's interesting to note the consistency with which Wellington dealt fairly with any matters concerning his subordinates, regardless of rank. Wellington's preference of the privileged did not prejudice his actions as a commander. I also want to spend a moment thinking about Wellington's relations with foreign troops, which is a very big topic. It's also highly significant. Um, there isn't time to give it the full treatment here today, but it is something that is worth considering when we're looking at this relationship with troops and what Wellington's opinions actually were about those under his command. And the last thing I ever want to do is make this podcast one that suggests that the Peninsula War, uh, the Napoleonic Wars, the Waterloo Campaign were won exclusively by the British Army because it's blatantly not the case. Now, an assessment of the relationship between Wellington and his foreign troops is quite difficult because there are frustratingly few sources that have been translated to English. Now, you might say, OK, learn Spanish. I'm on that, but it takes time. It appears that very little material has survived, if it ever existed. Alithia Laspera's work, for example, has shown that of the 3,537 documents held in the Collection Documentale del Frey there, that were written during the Peninsula War, only 21 documents praised Wellington, and none of those were written by soldiers. However, Wellington's opinions on his foreign troops, particularly the Spaniards, are far clearer and are probably quite well known, as his dispatches contain a number of references to the foreign contingents of the Allied army. As a result, the troops' views of Wellington have been assessed in this podcast through less direct evidence, although the uh, analysis of Wellington's views relies specifically on his own papers. The Portuguese army was retrained under the British system from the early stages of the Peninsula War, with some pretty spectacular results. Wellington's correspondence demonstrate the potential that he saw in the Portuguese army as he praised the conduct of the Lusitanian Legion for their part in the attack on Oporto in 1809. He also wrote to Marshal Beresford, the commander of the Portuguese army, a British-appointed commander, um, assuring him that we are mistaken if we believe that what these Portuguese require is discipline, and went on to suggest that the force would improve significantly if confidence was established between officers and men. Wellington's faith was seemingly justified, as their conduct at the Battle of Basako was exemplary and gave the force significant confidence. Although on occasions they broke during battle, 
Rory Muir has pointed out that the collapse of Pack's brigade of Portuguese troops at the Battle of Salamanca occurred in circumstances that would have had a similar effect on British troops. And it's worth bearing in mind that actually the 4th Division breaks at Salamanca and is comprised of principally British troops. So breaking in battle is not necessarily an indication of poorer quality, but rather of circumstance. Wellington summarised the sentiment, I consider the Portuguese troops next to the British to be the best in the peninsula. However, Wellington never quite had the same faith in the Portuguese troops that he had in the English, uh, as he always distributed Portuguese brigades amongst British brigades in each division and refused a request to group all Portuguese troops together into a single Portuguese division. Wellington's relationship with the Portuguese army was not completely harmonious due to the recurring problems of plundering. The worst instance of this occurred during the aftermath of the siege of Badajoz, when Wellington was apoplectic with rage when he learnt that Portuguese troops that he had sent into the city to stop the looting had abandoned their duties and joined the looters. It's interesting to note that foreign troops also gave the Duke nicknames, which provides one of the few clear indications of the respect and affection that Portuguese troops had for the Duke. The Portuguese called him Douro after the title bestowed upon him following his victory at Oporto in May 1809. The most famous use of this occurred during the Battle of Sororan. Wellington had been caught by surprise when Marshal Salt launched an attack against the Allied army in a bid to regain the initiative in the Pyrenees. However, when the Portuguese troops saw Wellington riding past, they began cheering Douro, Douro. The knowledge that Wellington had arrived amongst the Allied troops prompted a cheer that spread, and Wellington exploited that reaction in a very rare display of theatrics, riding to a knoll where he was visible to the entire army. The volume of that cheering is said to have caused Salt to delay an attack as he assumed that the Allies had just received considerable reinforcements. One indication then, when Wellington's presence on the battlefield really was equivalent to the arrival of 10,000 men. And it provides an indication of the value that troops of all nationalities placed on Wellington's presence on the battlefield. The men of the King's German Legion had a similar relationship with Wellington as the British troops. Wellington held the original Hanoverian recruits of the King's German Legion in high regard, writing to the Commander-in-Chief, the Duke of York, it is impossible to have better soldiers than the real Hanoverians. The quality of those troops deteriorated over the course of the war, since the number of new recruits from Hanover dwindled once the French took control of the region and the ranks had to be filled with any German volunteers that could be acquired. Nonetheless, Wellington valued those troops and the KGL deserved to be held in high esteem, particularly considering the actions of the KGL cavalry breaking French infantry squares at Garthia Hernandez. Nonetheless, the KGL were not infallible and exhibited many of the traits that caused Wellington great concern. We've talked already about the Battle of Vela Talavera, where two brigades of KGL infantry had been in Sherbrooke's division, which failed to rally after their counter-attack with sufficient time to repulse a second French assault. Furthermore, the actions of the KGL cavalry at Garthia Hanandeth, although gallant and exceptionally brave, were also extremely risky. They were another demonstration of recklessness by cavalry and could easily have resulted in very heavy losses. 
The KGL were also just as inclined as any other soldier to loot um, during the Peninsular War, although the KGL were not sufficiently persistent perpetrators for Wellington to mention them specifically in his correspondence. Shalman presents an interesting anecdote, actually, on the Duke's reaction to finding a KGL looter, although it's impossible to determine if this really happened. He says, as he, Wellington, was standing talking to Lieutenant Colonel Aronschild and the officers, one of the men of the regiment, the 1st German Hussars, came riding up with a bleating sheep which he had stolen. The moment Lord Wellington saw the man, however, he only smiled, turning his back on the men and pretended not to have noticed anything. Shalman's claim, as I say, has to be approached with caution, because although he held a rank in the KGL, he was from the Commissariat Department and therefore spent a limited amount of time with his unit. It's also unclear whether Shalman witnessed that event or it's simply a retold rumour. But even if it is a rumour, his comment does provide an, a curious insight into a seemingly unique aspect of that relationship because it either provides an interesting contradiction to the idea that Wellington was meticulously fair or if nothing else it shows that that was at least the belief that KGL troops had about Wellington that there were times when he would turn a blind eye to their behaviour. The men of the KGL seemingly respected Wellington with one officer writing with admiration on the way in which Wellington placed himself in the positions of greatest danger during the Battle of Talavera. He also commented on how Wellington was never prepared to take any risks with his men's lives and reinforces the widely recognised ability that Wellington had for restoring order on the battlefield through his presence. This suggests that Wellington and the KGL enjoyed a relationship very similar to, or perhaps even slightly better than, that which the Duke had with his own British troops. Wellington himself recognised the poor relationship that he had with the Spanish army, remarking, I do everything in my power for the Spanish army, and I co cannot govern its soldiers as I do others. Although Charles Esdell's work has clearly demonstrated the extent to which Wellington's command of the Spanish army was affected by frustrating political considerations, that in itself does not appear to have had a significant impact on the Duke's views of his troops. The Duke's correspondence indicates that the army's poor discipline was a source of significant frustration and actually a far greater concern. In a letter to General Vireth y Spignola, Wellington criticised the Spanish infantry for failing to perform its duty. Following the Battle of Talavera, he wrote with disgust on the way in which the Spaniards had run away, despite not being threatened by any French forces. In fact, it's thought to have been a deliberate move by Wellington to place the Spanish in the most secure section of his line. However, Wellington's opinions on the responsibility of officers once again meant that he primarily blamed the officers of the Spanish army for those failings. Indeed, Wellington was wholly disdainful of the Spanish officers as he wrote to his brother Henry, suggesting that the state of the Spanish army was unsurprising as the men cannot have confidence in officers who have no knowledge of their profession. As Wellington detested incompetence, his contempt can easily be imagined. Wellington's fairness and appreciation of the realities of campaigning also meant that he moderated his disapproving comments about the Spaniards, as he recognised that a lack of pay 
was a significant issue for the Spanish troops. In May 1812, he wrote his brother Henry Wellesley, condemning the way in which General Castaños paid his officers first, with the result that the men were never paid. Wellington's frequent criticisms, combined with jealousy, may have caused some Spanish officers to dislike the Duke for the way in which he injured their pride. Jealousy certainly motivated General Ballesteros to insubordination when Wellington was appointed Generalissimo in 1812. And the issue may have been persistent, as evidence of it can be found in a private letter written following the Battle of Talavera. A translation of that document was printed in the Times on the 26th of August 1809, although it's difficult to determine how representative it was of Spanish opinion, as the name and rank of the individual were not printed. However, it signed off Headquarters Talavera de la Reina, therefore suggesting that it was written by an officer. The significance of the letter lies in its failure to praise or even mention Wellington, thereby implying an unwillingness to acknowledge that he deserved any credit. It's unsurprising that foreign troops under Wellington's command were just as inclined to loot as the British. However, unlike the British, Wellington was unable to address the issue in the Spanish army, despite being appointed generalissimo. Wellington's inability to resolve the problem meant that he felt compelled to take drastic action when the Allied army invaded France. The refusal of the Spaniards to obey his general order, calling, to tr calling for troops to respect French property, is unsurprising, as it was natural that many sought revenge for the atrocities that the French had committed. Although Esdale persuasively argues that the Spanish had no other means of subsistence due to issues with the supply of the Spanish army, it cannot be denied that revenge was an equally significant motivating factor. Nonetheless, an appreciation of the motivations behind the looting did not override Wellington's pragmatism. Wellington feared that prolonged exposure to Spanish looting would cause the local French population to revolt against the Allies, thereby subjecting the army to the kind of guerrilla opposition that had caused such extreme difficulties for the French in Spain. As a result, he ultimately sent an entire Spanish division home, amounting to 40,000 men, sent them back across the Pyrenees, with the exception of 4,000 under General Murillo, who behaved significantly better. Wellington's willingness to continue the campaign without the Spaniards is a testimony to his faith in his remaining troops to see the campaign through to a successful conclusion. However, it is important not to suggest that Wellington believed that the Spanish troops made an insignificant contribution to the war effort because he deeply regretted sending them home. Sending home 40,000 men is not something that he did lightly, uh, not least because it's a huge body of troops. The fact that he was prepared to keep the well-behaved Spanish troops in his army reinforces that notion that he appreciated their ability on the battlefield. Furthermore, he wrote to Bathurst remarking that if I could but bring forward 20,000 good Spaniards, paid and fed, I should have Bayon. If I could bring forward 40,000, I don't know where I should stop. However, as always, the pragmatic concerns for continued success and preservation of the army forced Wellington's hand. Events at the Battle of Toulouse suggest that Wellington's faith in the remaining Spanish troops was misplaced. During the battle, the Spaniards were broken by a French counterattack, causing Wellington to sarcastically remark that he had never seen 10,000 men run a race before. However, as with the scum of the earth quote, 
One of Wellington's most scathing and witheringly sarcastic comments has distorted the popular perception of the Spanish army's ability and success in battle. At Toulouse, the Spanish had been given the task of assaulting the strongest French position, and to their credit, they subsequently reformed, returning to the battle despite heavy losses. The Spanish were also capable of fighting effectively on their own, as events at San Martial demonstrated when they successfully held their position against a French attack unaided. Indeed, Wellington refused a request for reinforcements when he saw that the Spanish had already driven the French from the field. And that disproves Tompkinson's claim that Wellington only approved a success under his own supervision, as he sought to ensure that the Spaniards were given the credit that they duly deserved. The extent of Wellington's appreciation of the ability of Spanish NCOs and men is indicated in a letter written by Dinley in March 1812. In this, Dinley informs his mother that Wellington had ordered the enlistment of 800 Spaniards from the local Spanish population. Quite simply, he wouldn't have had those men drafted into British units if he didn't think that they would fight well. A small amount of indirect evidence exists to suggest that the Spaniards held Wellington in high regard once he had established his reputation for defeating the French in battle. Alithia Lasper's research in the Collection Documentale del Frey shows that, in contrast to modern Spanish views on Wellington, there was considerable respect for the Duke amongst the general population. As the Spanish troops were inevitably drawn from the population, it's logical to assume that at least a significant body appreciated Wellington's efforts to liberate their country. Further evidence of support for the Duke can be found in the writings of Major General Long, a British cavalry officer who wrote that the Spaniards appear thunderstruck by this miraculous change in their affairs. They begin to think Lord Wellington is really a general, and they are piously calling him an angel. Once again, the sentiments of the population were likely to be reflected, at least to some degree, amongst the Spanish soldiers. The Spanish also, incidentally, had their own nickname for Wellington, the Eagle. The origins of that name are unclear, but the significance lies in the fact that Spanish soldiers, again, devised a popular, a popular name for the Duke. So to finally wrap all of this up, the Allied army that served in the peninsula was a constant source of concern for Wellington. Whether ensuring that the troops were adequately fed and clothed or dealing with looting and other cases of poor discipline, the Duke wrote an enormous length on the problems that occupied his thoughts. It's therefore fairly unsurprising that his harshest and most scathing comments have become the focus of assessments of the relationship between the commander and his troops. However, Wellington's relations with his troops were, regardless of rank and nationality, far more complex than that infamous, quote, scum of the earth suggests. Instead, Wellington's feelings swung from exasperation and fury at lapses of discipline and laziness of some officers to satisfaction at their ability on the battlefield and back again. Furthermore, there was remarkable consistency in relationships between each of the sections that I've talked about, as a series of common themes and sentiments underpinned each relationship. For Wellington, pragmatism and professionalism were always the paramount concern, and he refused to tolerate anything that had the potential to jeopardise the welfare of his army and its success on campaign. For his troops, the Duke's harsh comments at times created bitterness, 
although some recognised that a number of his remarks, although not all, were justified. They were also frequently frustrated by his caution and unwillingness to trust their ability to maintain their discipline in battle. However, Wellington seemingly judged his men's limitations fairly well, as no individual that I've come across, at least, ever suggested that he asked too much of them. It is undeniable that Wellington considered his men to be the scum of the earth. He undoubtedly despised those of his officers who were incompetent or negligent of their duties. Above all, he hated how looting by soldiers of all nationalities alienated the local population. However, any assessment of the relationship between Wellington and his army of the Peninsular War must always return to the Duke's wistful tribute of his men's fighting ability. I could have gone anywhere and done anything with that army. It was in such perfect order. The most basic function of any army must, quite obviously, be to fight and win the battles in which they are engaged. Wellington knew that with sufficient attention to their needs and through the rigorous imposition of discipline, his men would do precisely that. In turn, the men came to take for granted that if Wellington led them, they would be as well fed as circumstances allowed and that they would win any battle he committed them to. Wellington's seemingly arrogant claim is perhaps the best summary of his relationship with his army. They will do for me what perhaps no one else can make them do. Phew, hopefully that blockbuster slightly makes up for my prolonged silence and thank you to everyone for bearing with me on my uh, elongated absence. There's a huge amount in there from recruitment and social composition of the army to personal relationships, morale, nicknames, incompetence and scathing put-downs. You know how I work by now. If you've got a question or comment, I'd love to hear from you. Drop me a line on Twitter at ZWhiteHistory or in the forum at www.thenapoleonicwars.net forward slash forum. Thank you, incidentally, to everyone who is getting involved in the forum, because I recently discovered that it's become the world's leading forum on the Napoleonic Wars, which is incredibly humbling. And it's great to know that there is the demand for it out there. If you enjoyed the episode, please take the time to give it a review and leave a comment wherever it is that you get your podcast. It really does help. Equally, if you hated it, let me know. I've never got a problem with somebody giving it a one star if they thought it was rubbish, but please do tell me why so that I can actually work on whatever it was that gave you cause for concern. There is a lot of exciting stuff coming up over the next few months on The Napoleon Assist. The next episode, out in early September, will be an exclusive interview with Claire Civita on theatre and censorship in Napoleonic France. It was such an interesting interview. Trust me, you will not want to miss that. And I was really pleased to finally scratch that itch that I'd be developing on looking at some good cultural history from the period. So keep an eye out for that. I'm also organising an interview on the impact of the period on British literature, which is going to be brilliant, and another on surgery and medicine on the front line. Both are going to be insanely good. and I'm really looking forward to bringing those to you. November is going to be Napoleon month. I'm bringing in people from both sides of the Napoleon debate in a carefully considered back and forth, whilst also doing a separate episode on the man's life, and another in which I try to offer a balanced view on the man and his legacy, which, if I'm being honest, probably nobody's going to like, because you can't please all sides on that debate. 
I'm also working on something new for you, a reviews special, where I review some recent Napoleonic-related releases for you, so you can start to have a think about what you might want to add to your Christmas wish list. So loads to come. In the meantime, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.